Welcome to Bootstrappers, a program designed to bring you up-to-the-minute ideas and concepts to understand what it takes to succeed in business and life. Each week, we'll bring you guests and ideas you can't find anywhere else. Bootstrappers is a production of Anaquim LLC. Now let's lace up those business boots and join Bootstrappers with Jeremy and Gwen Aspen. Welcome to this episode of Bootstrappers. I'm your host, Gwen Aspen, president of Anaquim, and I'm here with my lovely spouse. That's me. Jeremy Aspen, president of Wistar Group. And here at Bootstrappers, we talk to stakeholders in entrepreneurship and business. Today's going to be kind of a fun show because we get to go down memory lane and remember our first years in property management and uh, how we got all of our clients. Oh yeah, the good years of business, <laughs> the beginning. Oh, that's the fun part. <laughs> that's the... Well, um, but later in the show, we have the expert, Jeremy Pound from Rent Scale, who's going to talk to us about how he helps his clients grow their top line revenue uh, way faster than they could alone. So we're going to give you like the old school version of how we did it, the bootstrapper's the way. The bootstrapper. <laughs> and then Jeremy's going to come and give us the expert uh, education. The so, other Jeremy. The lesser. We could probably, Jeremy. let's just, the lesser. Stop, Should we ref- no, no, just don't even. Right, okay. Right. So let's get to it, Jeremy. I want you to take us down back to 2006. Six, six, oh God, okay, so yeah. So, and uh, tell us about what exactly transpired. How did you get your first properties? Because those are always the hardest to get. Well, so first of all, I had moved back from overseas. And when you live overseas, you don't have a lot to do with your money. So you, a lot of people just put the money back into the United States, where they're originally from. And you build kind of a real estate portfolio. I had, over the course of my years in another country, uh, I think I'd bought 18 units. Um, and then my best friend, Luis, he had 64 of his own units. And so, you know, coming back to Omaha, we didn't have, there weren't a lot of prospects for international supply chain management. So, there were. There weren't. <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, I mean, you can move grain like corn <laughs> and, and nothing against it. I think it's a great industry, but it just what didn't. Yeah. match my my expertise. So um, we got together and decided that we were going to put together a management company because it made a lot of sense. We were going to create a, our own business. Um, and then so... Uh, you kind of defined your own niche at the time too. I, I remember you said we're going to be... Because we were looking at property managers bef- before we moved here. Yeah. And nobody was very tech savvy at the time. So your niche was you were going to be the most tech savvy property management well, company. Yeah. So actually, I'll remind you that one of the things it was what you said, you said we need to go into an industry, a shady industry and not be shady. Which I would say over the course of the last well, with our fifteen years or so, has it's not shade, shady at all. Um, but but uh, here in Omaha, we had a hard time because we looked for property management companies at the time, and it just none of them rose to the the caliber of uh, quality that we wanted to have for our properties because it was a big part of our retirement plan. Um, so we started out with a simple list. We got it from the county, and it was all. Let's see, we got. Uh, properties, single family, single family homes and multiplexes of properties where the mailing address was not the same. As the address. As the address of the, of the property building. itself. And so we sent out, I think, 113 flyers um, just as a sample. Like we just wanted to get an idea of what this would, what, what percent we might be able to count on. And so we got 13 responses and we got 12 closed and wow. one of them was the day it landed i remember uh his name was ken he walked right into the office he says i got your flyer let's get this thing going really yeah that day um so we were like whoa okay great and so we got a contract signed it up uh and he had left um this other i don't want to mention any names but there was another property management company in town and uh she was kind of a nasty person just, yeah she it wasn't going well with him so uh, it turned out that of the 12 that we got, I think 10 or 11 of them actually came from that company. So it was a little fortuitous. In Tell that, us why that was problematic. Well, because the laws here in Nebraska protect brokers from um, approaching another broker's client. Which we, but and it she has to be. Accused you. And I had been accused of it. Yeah. So I, oh, I can tell you that story too. So we went down to, uh, I went to go pick up some 
this was another client that we got on board and it was something like 56 units. It was kind of a big deal. So we went down there, picked up the keys and she, she uh, invites, I never met her before, invites me into her office and uh, starts just reading me the riot act. Like you're doing this, it's illegal, you can't approach my clients. And I tried to explain to her, I didn't approach your clients, I didn't target. That, that would be illegal to target. I sent out a flyer and here's the criteria. And then she just kept talking. And I, I opened the door back up cause she was kind of getting nuts. And, and I just talked to her from out in the hallway and just told her, I, I'll see you later. I file I a, my a complaint. I, don't, yeah. I got the keys. Uh, we'll see you 10 more times in the next month. Oh my God. It turned out. So, um, anyway, after that, I ended up going and calling all of my competitors and taking them out to lunch. Just because, you know, if we're going to be in this business together, and that, get along. That also kind of worked out for us because we would take any piece of garbage that had a roof on it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's part of the, the thing. Like, we were just starting out. And so some of our competitors were maybe a little bit more established and they were like, well, do you want this? Because I don't want to manage it. And we were like, absolutely. We'll take it. <laughs> that sounds like a great property. You could drive by. You're like, yeah. Wow. Oh my God. We're going to turn this one around. Um, but the, another good source was the uh, here in Omaha, the Metropolitan, uh, the Metro Omaha Property Owners Association. And they're more of an activist group, kind of politically engaged. Uh, but it's a group of, um, of investors mm-hmm. that all own residential property and they kind of manage it themselves. And so we became a little bit of a feeder being involved in the organization. And then we became kind of a feeder for people that were looking to get out and do their own thing. And I'm sure there are those organizations in every metropolitan area, wouldn't you think? Uh, there, oh yeah, there's gotta be. And if there's not start one up because uh, it was helpful. It's kind of like a local version of NARPM, I would guess where this organization gets involved in local issues like, uh, laws and things like that, law statute at the state level, but also, um, code here in the city. Um, and then, so anyway, after all that, we probably got about, I think we got ourselves up to about 200 and some units, just that how, first wh- go around. What time, how, maybe, what time frame? Maybe 300. Oh, call it immediately. Okay. I mean, yeah. It kind of, we kind of grew very quickly. So then you had to work on your processes and procedures, I imagine. Yeah. Although I'd always kind of been developing them to some extent and, uh, like I, cause I'm a inherently lazy, like I, I'm the hardest working lazy person. <laughs> Uh, that I've met. I just, I don't want to do things twice. So I set it up so that I don't. Um, and then, um, and then we, yeah, then actually after a while we formalize things and, um, and then it, and then you get a reputation. Then, so that was good for a while. And then it was not so good for a while. Well, so uh, actually that got us up to probably after a while, not too long, we were up to 400 and some units and then you have to restructure again. Um, but, you know, after a while, now now we're jumping. So so let's t- tell that story why we had to restructure. So we got to a certain level and we were we kind of hit a wall with growth, I would say. Mm. And we talked to people and we're like, we would do our sales pitch. They felt good about our processes and procedures. They felt good about our knowledge about the industry. And we and had it, been hiring good people. We'd been hiring good people, but they would say, "Ugh, your side." There's a lot of work. There's a lot of work. Your side, like I don't think I can get the kind of rent that I need. Yeah, so because of your brand is known as being low entry yeah, because we took anything. Yeah, when you start up your B and C, you know, it's pretty rare to be able to get an A class property at that point. And so at a certain point, and that point for us was um, well, at about 150 units, you start getting into some operational issues. You have to restructure. And you get to about 400, 450 <laughs> units, and you have to restructure again. Um, and we, you know, we did. We went through all those. And then at another point later on, we ended up having to restructure, rebrand the company. Rebrand. So the name of the company before was CPM Realty, Certified Property Management. And then we went to Wistar Group and kind of the the uh, objective was to be able to, when, it, when we brought on a new good client that we kind of were more targeting, we would let go of one of the other units, uh, one of the C-class units for starters. And so then you So then it, our unit count didn't really increase. We the, were yeah, increasing the, in quality. The unit count stays the same. Uh, but the revenue triples for each unit about because you're going from the 500 unit $500 a month uh, a month in rent to about you know 12 to 1500 dollars a month in rent and also the labor per unit goes down because they're just easier to manage oh for sure so for years we actually were transitioning this is jumping ahead to about 1200 units 
We had 1,200 units and we were working really hard. And then we transitioned over the course of two or three years, all the C-class properties out, some of the B-class properties out. Our revenue actually as a company skyrocketed Mm -hmm. um, and the cost per unit went down. So it was an important part of the It was an important thing. And it allowed us to get a nicer space, which could make clients feel like, oh, this is a higher end group. And, you know, the brand had a better cachet to it. For sure. The other thing that was fun about rebranding and going in that direction was we had the list of properties we were going to get rid of if we got new business on and we would kind of celebrate with our maintenance team because they're the ones who felt the pain the oh, most. Oh man, did they ever. And yeah. so when we would cross a bad property off the list, we'd be like, whoa! <laughs> Yeah, and, we got and, this nice one here, but now we get to cross this. And it kind of kept um, the camaraderie going and the excitement about the business. Our, that was fun. It kept our unit count pretty stable for years. <laughs> Actually, even to this point, we've been doing it until recently. And now we're kind of all in the A and B space. And, and it's made a huge difference. I would say the next part that is scary is when we committed to really not having any properties that were low right. end. We changed some of our practices and it was a little scary because we had some huge buildings that were low class. And when we, we said, well, we're gonna close our office and be appointment only, we want people to have online applications, so you're gonna have to pay to use a paper application. Well, And our practices were changing so that we could put more money to that higher end client. And we knew by doing that, we would be smoking out the low end but it's clients. Kind of, it's kind of uh, hard. Well, it's, it, you said it's hard to do, but about the time when you start getting a reputation for being a high quality outfit, you also start to get a lot of calls for the lower end stuff. So to your point, saying no to 100 unit deals is very difficult. Oh, especially to do. coming from where we came from, where for so many years it was just like, oh, the grind, we gotta make it, we gotta take it, we have to do whatever we can. To have that new mindset that we should be picky was and a transition for some of the ownership team. I although would say. there was also one caveat we would take the business if they agreed to a transition to it becoming that's a, true from c to b and then we got known for doing that mm -hmm. when people wanted to when they would come in and they'd be like i need to evict everybody in this building we were known as the t turnaround experts yeah and that only then a, to have all those sell the second you turn them around that's another one you're like oh my god you get something that cranked up from b to uh, c to b and then or b to a and lo and behold they it becomes far more valuable and then that if, has yeah and and that, if you don't do sales which we didn't do sales especially at the time we're not at the table why did we not do sales i think that was an interesting the, thing because well so i had told that story earlier about that other company they used property management as a loss leader and i don't think that that's odd i don't think that's abnormal in the industry but and it was uh, normal locally speaking it was too. very normal it was actually we were the only ones and might even be the only ones that don't offer sales because i what it did was it made it so that the prize was being at the table when a property turned over so the revenue of those property management companies became the sales because they you, had first right of refusal. Because they had for, uh, right, they had first right of refusal, and so you sell the, the the property sells. You're at the table. You're getting the buyers end, the sellers end, and and there's good money in it. But what also happens is that if you have that stable kind of revenue, the transitional sales kind, then you can easily give up on the quality of property management to be, make the sale go sooner. Well, and so one of the buildings that we took on. It had been through the sales cycle with that other property management company seven times in six years. So the theory, and I think it probably holds true, is that if you uh, do do the sales and you're not focusing on making the property management company better, then that's what's going to happen. And long term, it's just not a very good play, I don't think. And at, if at nothing else, it helps you hone your skills as a professional property management company and be the best option in the market. And when we were uh, at the table as newbies without much of a reputation, 
only doing property management and explaining why that was better. That did help. Really a lot. helped us close a lot of deals that we wouldn't otherwise do. Now, I would say one of the next things that's important about this is that after that happened, we went through a phase where we solely focused on profitability. And yeah. so that's what we're kind of leaving right now. Now we're in a place, and it's great to talk to Jeremy Pound well, at Rent Scale right now because we're kind of at that place where we are lean, we're working smoothly, our processes and procedures are excellent, and now it's all about top line growth. So you're going to learn a lot personally from Jeremy yeah, we've Pound never, as well. Yeah, we've never at Worcester Group had a BDM, a business development manager, anybody that did sales of the property management services. And Jeremy Pound, that's that's the specialty. So you know, we've come up and, and we've done well, I think because of our focus on quality over the years and word of mouth, but our spending per unit for for marketing and sales is it was close to zero. Right. It became organic. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's something to that. But we've been at this unit count, call it twelve hundred units for years now. And there is if I understand correctly, a way to really incorporate a BDM and have it more than pay for itself. So I'm going to, I am open to the idea of doing that yeah. despite it having been nothing that we've done in the past. And we're super happy to have Jeremy Pound here today. Jeremy is the CEO of RentScale and RentScale, and correct me if I'm wrong, helps uh, property management companies increase their top line revenue. Is that a good way to say it, Jeremy? That's a good way to do it. We do it by helping them systematize and operationalize their sales department and hopefully finally replace themselves as the only salesperson in the company. Oh. As a point of order, I think we should probably clarify there are two Jeremy's and we probably, <laughs> just to make it obvious, will refer to me as Jeremy the Greater. This will be Stop Jeremy no. the Lesser, if that's oh okay. Gosh. Does that work? Whatever. Just easy to remember. It is hard on the, on the radio or audio with two Jeremy's, so I can see this getting a little confusing. <laughs> But going back to sales, so I mean, this is an authentic question for us because we're kind of in that position where we feel like our operations are awesome, we uh, our branding is good. So, what what is what what is it that we have to do next to really grow that top line growth and get in front of cl uh, clients who own properties? That's a great question, and you know, I've for, for twenty years I've run a service based sales organization. And I can tell you guys for the first 10 or 12 years, I took a lot of pride in being the only salesperson in my company, right? It was the Jeremy show. And if I wasn't the one doing the sales, then like what value was I really adding, right? That was maybe like a limiting thought sure. that I had. Um, but I can tell you guys, this is my, this is my journey. Um, the strength of the leader is very often the weakness of the company. Because I was so good at sales, I never thought anybody else had to do it because I did a little marketing, but I would always get bogged down and get sucked into other things, right? And so let's just share that experience that as soon as I got myself out of it, things started moving much faster. There's a great Jack Welch quote that I love. And Jack, Jack Welch says, I've always been the best salesperson in any company I've ever run, but I can't sell as much as 10 salespeople. And so I want to build a department. And I think that even works when it comes down to one person. And let's just be honest, guys, like, we as business owners love to say, we, we want to go after this kind of client. We want to charge this amount. We want to have this margins, but we're the first ones to have the latitude and the authority to break that. Now yeah. my sales team has to go up a chain of command to come to me to compromise on anything that we've set as a standard versus me being in the, in the height of the moment saying, Oh, I can get this deal. If I just give away a little bit of margin or if I just break this policy, if I just do this. So, for all those reasons, I have you know, come to the religion that the business owner should not be doing sales if they want the company to scale. Well, and Jeremy, another thing that is interesting about what you just said is uh, we had another guest on who was talking about selling their mm -hmm. business. And you have to think, according to him, seven years ahead of when you wanna sell Mm. And your company is going to sell for far less if the owner of the company who wants to get out of it is the face of the company and it is their show and they're the ones doing all the sales. Isn't that true? Well, this is such a great point. You know, this comes up a lot uh, back in the day as Jeremy and I were just joking about when we were allowed to congregate in person, we would go to these things called conferences. We used to get these metal tubes. <laughs> uh, 
country. I remember those days. Uh, no, not everybody does. So, but you know, <laughs> if you're old enough to remember, we used to go to these conferences and th this would come up. People would come over to the booth and they would say, oh, you know, I'm mostly growing by acquisition and it's all about, you know, X, per, X dollars per property and everything is factored in. And I, I said, that's fantastic. You know, what are you trying to do with the business? Is it just a cash flow play? And very often people would say, well, I want to grow it. And then when I'm around, you know, 500 doors, 1,000 doors, I'd love to sell this thing. And my question to them was always, okay, great. You are selling uh, basically an asset to somebody else that will never be as valuable as it is, as it is the day you sell it. And they're going to catch on because how did you grow these properties? If they don't know how to do that themselves, then they're going to, give you a bunch of money and then they have a 500 properties and maybe six months from then there'll be attrition, it'll be 480, it'll be 460. Com contrast that with this idea that you have a sales and marketing engine. So I have 500 properties and by the way, I can show you for the last seven months, we've been attracting 15 quality owners every month, right? So when you get in now, this business is going to be worth even more every single month that you own it. Those are very different value propositions and that's Absolutely. why- Absolutely. Owning a quality sales team is a huge asset if you want to sell your business. What was the name of that book that we read? It was about selling your company. Oh, it was like, I think it's was called- Was it Built to Sell? Yes. Built, built to, to sell. sell. Yeah, yeah. Great. Morello. I'm a huge fan. I, guys, side note, I had a marketing agency just like that, that book was about. And I was doing everything. And I read that book and I said, this is crazy. <laughs> 18 months later, I sold my marketing agency. And that's when I started you know, my sales and marketing company. So- I have a high regard for John. I got oh, some that's awesome. So, so just to go back a little bit for all the listeners and viewers, that book basically uh, said that if you are the company, then it's almost impossible for you to sell your company for, uh, with any value assigned to it because like Jeremy had just mentioned, when you sell the company and that person leaves, you're, the, really the company is essentially shutting away. down. Yeah. And you're going to be stuck, or I should say, you're going to be stuck inside that company with some sort of an agreement to be there for three or five years yeah. longer anyway, which isn't the same as selling and retiring. Exactly. It's really just kind of acting as the cushion for some transition that hasn't even really been all that well-defined for the future. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Congratulations. So you now have a boss. You do it now. <laughs> right. Right. Yes, exactly. So we can, so if we extrapolate a little bit, so that book was about a marketing firm and how the, the owner of the company worked really hard, was doing a lot of the sales. He got a new team on board and they kind of designed their own product. That product then became what was sold. The machinery is what supported it. Uh, and the owner really worked on important relationships and more like the CEOing of it, right? So we're in property management and you know what other, other industries our listeners and viewers are in. Um, we are in a position, well, I should ask the question, I guess, how is our industry similar to that? And how does the sales part kind of fit in what you do? Really good question. So I think this is a, such an exciting time to be building a residential property management company because of all of the innovation that's happening. Uh, one, all the trends, in my opinion, are going the right way. More and more Americans and non-Americans, by the way, are waking up to the idea that they want to own rental properties in the US, right? That's just an undisputed yeah. thing that's happening. Two, uh, more and more of those people want to do it less full time. They've got other things going on. Three, we, we are enjoying all kinds of crazy products and financial plays that, that mitigate risk and guarantee rent. And you know there, there's pet insurance. We're able to transfer the fees that the owner of the property used to have to pay um, to have that property managed. Now, a lot of those fees are actually transferred over to the tenants, as you guys know. So the, the divide, the gulf between the people that are doing it well and the way that the average Joe would expect it to be done is huge. And so all of our opportunity is in the sales and marketing. It's, it's one, the business owner should be out there building and developing the best product possible and keeping up with all this innovation. And two, it doesn't matter how great your product is. It's a myth in business that the person with the best product wins. If that story is not being told in a way that's landing and understandable to a prospect, not in your own language, with your own inside baseball and the way you know how to do it and the curse of knowledge, which we all you know, experience, but in a way that is basically blowing the prospect's mind, building trust, saying what they're thinking better than they can say it, 
and just truly showing them that you you know you have so much value that they would actually pay double what you're charging then you know you're leaving a ton of money on the table today and i'm watching that all over the country it is so i mean i was never in property management it's been about 18 months to two years since my business partner jordan moela found me who's the founder of lead simple or co-founder and he said i love what you're doing jeremy because i was doing this for all kinds of service-based small businesses and he said, you got to see what's happening in this property management industry. And we started Rentscale. We built our own team. And, and that's like, I just got like this front row seat to watch what you guys are doing. And I think it's fantastic. So, okay. So let's say we're sold. We know Jeremy has to stop doing the sales, which is true <laughs> with Star Group uh, and his Doug partner. We have to, his, his partner, Doug, and we have to get a BDM. What is the first step? Great question. So... Uh, when we are doing things ourselves as the owner, um, it's easy to be a little bit lazy and I'm not accusing you guys of doing that. I'm simply talking from experience. You know, uh, Jordan jokes about this all the time. When the business owner is uh, doing all the sales, they're like, oh, CRM reporting isn't very important. But as soon as they hire someone else to do the sales, right. all you want to do is talk about the CRM reporting, right? right yeah. But that's just one microcosm of all the things in our business. And that's why the strength of the leader is often the weakness of the company, right? So one is just getting it down on paper, right? This is just E-Myth 101, you know, it's just get this stuff down on paper. What's the process? What if every sale looked almost identical? And believe me, that is possible. I think that we tell ourselves a story that every customer is different, every sell sale is different. But when your sales process can be every bit as operationalized as your accounting process, your rent collection process, your eviction process, whatever it is, that's when you've got power. So one is basically getting it down on paper. We call that the blueprint for scaling your sales because every company is a little different. What does that sales process look like? Do you have a sales playbook? Do you have an answer to all the right objections? Do you know exactly what your customer cares about, how to demonstrate value? This isn't as hard as it sounds, but this can be like, you know, five or six pages of sales language. And then do you have the tools to measure this, right? Does your CRM, whatever you're using, uh, actually enforce this process? The same way you guys use, you know, maybe a process street or another process, right? Any of your other businesses, if you're asking a team member to follow a process, you have tools to make sure that they follow that process, right? And so yep. that's step number one. Even if you're doing it, I did that with RentScale. I did all the sales. I wrote it down. I had the CRM and I was the beta test before I built our sales Great team. point. That's something that I actually pride myself on. If I'm going to implement something, I do test it first. I make sure that whatever the actions are that I'm asking of somebody, that data or whatever it is, shows up on somebody else's next step list, their yeah. list of things to do so that it can progress from one to the other without you know, you know, having to manage from, uh, you know, 30,000 feet and see where things are, research how to find, how to, how to find out where, where, th uh, the sales process is. Uh, if I could just one second, when you go into another company to consult and, and, uh, bring your services, do you let them know of other like services, other fees that they can charge other, uh, things that you've seen in, in clients similar to theirs, or do you just stick to the process and how to onboard or how to discover potential clients and then onboard them? That's a really good question, uh, Jeremy. And that's maybe kind of the fun about being so industry specific and seeing the same business model over and over again. Um, we don't necessarily sell that as what we do, right? So there's no uh, over uh, expectation that we're going to come in and revolutionize your business model. In fact, we want to be hired by people who love their business model and they want to just bottle that lightning and scale it, right? So they know it's working. How do we crank up the level. Uh, however, uh, you know, when you see, we've written playbooks for, I'm guessing, I'm just gonna throw out a number, close to 120 property managers. We've been to all these conferences, you know, both the speakers and, and, um, and, and vendors, and you're just kind of bathing in this stuff. And so when you see it, you like can't help but bring it up, you know, and it's just okay. so funny how somebody might bring us in and they're a nine out of 10 on like everything we're seeing. We're like, whoa, these guys are amazing. And then they have a blind spot that like our tiny clients don't have, you know what I mean? They're just like, oh, well you can't do this because of X. And we're like, no, actually we have like five clients that don't do that, you know? So that's just kind of something that's like uh, 
it's, it's reassuring for me as a business owner, right? No matter, no matter how big we get, no matter how long we do this, we still have our blind spots, right? And sometimes we're so busy uh, slaying the dragons that we forget to close the front door when we leave, you know? Yes, well, that's and I so said, true. And maybe tell me if I'm wrong. One of the things in our industry that I picked up on a few years ago, at least seemingly, is that companies were trying to drive new ways of finding revenue to grow. And yep. so kind of the trend in our industry became what I refer to as fee effing. It rhymes with trucking. <laughs> and so they just layer on all these different, sure. all these different charges for all these things that really didn't add any value. And I think it did to some extent bring in extra revenue, but it almost seemed like that was a replacement for having to have a sales team. Is that, yeah. have you at all, it's always been a theory of mine. I'm just curious. That's an interesting topic. I'm a big fan of what I call financial innovation. You know, you might call it fee trucking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can't be a consultant, Jeremy, unless you have a really good word for like what other people like, to, you know, say derogatory things about. Um, by the way, another one of those we always joke about when, when we're training BDMs and they're talking to an owner and they, they want to say, do you have enough money to carry their property? We teach them to say, we're looking for clients that have the financial stamina to carry the property, right? Ooh, so like, I like sometimes that. Sometimes like you that. just come up with the right term, <laughs> you, you know, you become a big fancy consultant. Uh, but yes, financial innovation is a fantastic way to discuss this idea of <laughs> transferring the feeds, uh, you know, from the owner to the client or to somebody else. Um, and, and, you know, like everything, it's diminishing returns, right? It's all about your core principles. I'm a big believer that you can be in business for reasons other than making money and still make a boatload of money, right? I don't think that they're incongruent. I know that we have major principles here, but we never shy away uh, from what profits can do for your team, for your community, for your impact, for your ability to give back, right? The lifeblood, go ahead. Well, yeah, so, and I know that we're, we're pushing up against a break, but that's a really important point because I do think that, profit like the larger the profit the better you can feed quality in your corporation there are too many people that try to walk a too fine of a line of margins and if you do that you can't you literally cannot be the best you can take plumbing outfits they charge 150 dollars an hour but what they have in common those really expensive ones is yep. that they have a great customer service department they have good reviews and it is because they charge more than everybody else Right. So and this is such a place where you're the person managing this huge investment is struggling to stay alive, right? I will literally say that in a sales call. Do you really want your property manager to be struggling to stay alive? Absolutely. That's so right. Oh my gosh. That's so true. And that happens a lot in our industry. So Jeremy, I want to get into hiring a BDM because uh, let's say I, I figured out the playbook. I have my process for sales written down. I'm fully committed to this, but there's going to be an outlay of cash maybe, you know, while I'm training this person and there's a little fear it's not going to work out and I'm going to lose money in this venture. So what is the, what steps do you tell property managers to do to make sure it's a good hire? This is Start a off with, don't be an idiot. <laughs> yeah. right? Start off with that. So exactly. Good. Yeah. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> have a product worth selling, right? Like if you don't believe in the product, you can't pay someone else to believe in it, right? No one's ever going to believe in it as much as you, which is just riffing on what Jeremy was saying. And, and, and you'd be shocked at how much I actually have to tell people that, you know, like, oh, really terrible at sales. This, this company's never really taken off, but if I get a salesperson, everything's going to work out, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, That's, yeah. I can totally okay. see that though. I okay. can totally Absolutely. see that. It's not the solution, it's the amplifier, right? So this will scale what you're already doing really well. Um, so let's just get that out of the way. Now, sometimes business owners are actually building a fantastic business and they are actually their worst salesperson because that's just not their personality and they don't have a, you know, they're not good at it. And so I'm not saying that you have to be crushing it as the owner before you hire someone, but the company has to be worth selling. So having said that, I, I don't wanna mislead anybody I've yet to find a, a business where there is no risk, there's no investment. I, I, when you hire a BDM, everyone says, I only wanna hire a BDM if they start paying for themselves right away. Listen guys, anything in business is an investment. However, I will say this, having put out my little uh, caveat, when you hire salespeople, it is the one rule that grows the pie 
rather than carving up the existing pie. So if you do this effectively, this person will grow the pie and you will be kicking yourself for not doing it earlier, right? The, if they're taking away the existing pie, you have done it wrong. And that's the easiest way to look at it. And it's pretty easy to measure. I mean, there are some jobs in operations or customer service where maybe, you know, you have to put a lot of effort into call monitoring and listening to calls. And it's very tedious to see if people are working out. Sales is pretty obvious, right? Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And again, with that one caveat that you're not going to hire on Tuesday and they're going to be paying for themselves by Thursday, they're going to take a little coaching and they're going to, you know, need some motivation. They're going to, sales is a different animal. Let's just be honest. They're going to be different than your operation people. Uh, but measurement of this is pretty clear. We know that it's working, right? At the end of the day, they're either growing the pie, they're either making you money or they're costing you money. And it's the easiest role to look at it that way. How much time do you give them? Would you, or would you recommend uh, a BDM be given to start to perform? That, that's a great question. So we, we talk, we have this conversation all the time and the answer depends, but it's an easy formula. And that is, you know, what does your business look like today, right? How much lead flow do you have? Are we, are you the kind of person that, that, you know, uh, one of my, one of our favorite clients in Orlando, they are spending over 10, thousand dollars a month on marketing they've got radio they've got billboards they their seo is insane the that bdm is just answering the phone and they're being measured on conversion ratio right mm. other clients that have an amazing reputation they're not investing they're, they haven't invested made that same kind of a marketing investment uh they want their bdms to go join bni to do outbound direct mail to you know we can easily find lists of property owners in the area they're relationship builders right you can imagine that those two people are going to be judged differently and i and give you 10 other shades of gray in between those two mm. so what do, what does your company look like today what are your expectations and then once we have that we build a, a 90 day onboarding plan and this is by the way guys what i'm about to say we do for salespeople Myself as a business owner who struggled with good people for the first decade of that, this is the trick that I, you know, I think is the best advice I could give. So we have a 90 day onboarding plan. We distill their job down to a single sheet of paper. We call it the scorecard. We know what their metrics are. We create a 90 day plan. So we have, here's where you're at at 90 days. And this is if I know you're successful. Here's where I believe you need to be at 60 days. Here's why I need you to be at 30. And then we go week three, week two, week one. The day that somebody starts in our company or for our clients, we actually put calendar invites on their calendar. One week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, 60 days, 90 days. And their objectives are on the calendar invite. So there is like mm, no- I love that. No hiding. Like this is where you need to be by week two. And then we have a meeting, right? And so what's amazing is you would be shocked at how many people just quit because they look at that calendar sure. invite and they're like, I'm nowhere near here. And they just show themselves out the door. But it keeps us honest as, as owners. And I'm not saying that you have to be super hard about it. And they're like 80% of the way there. And you're like, all right, where, where's, what coaching do you need? But, but let's just be honest. Most of us business owners, we hire someone and then we say, solve that problem. I'm over here. And we forget about it. Well, and I think for, the wrong, for a different personality, that sort, that model that you uh, just mentioned of, you know, week, two, three, four weeks, 30 days or uh, 60 days, 90 days might sound, uh, might make you a little bit nervous, but I will say of the salespeople that I know, that's what drives yes. them. Like that's, that's the personality fit. And that's how you know that you've got the right person in the first place. You're right. I just say, Don't be afraid of it. And, and that's part of the hiring process is I say, hey, this is, what, this is what we're asking you to do. These are the tools we're giving you. This is the training. This is the comp model. Can you do this? Sell me on that you can actually hit these metrics. So they, it's not like other hires where you're like, hey, I hope I can get you to where you need to be. It's like you've signed off on this, right? And so there's no like guilt about you either hitting it or you're not hitting it. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. And then also if it, you need to have a t tough conversation, I know a lot of property managers um, struggle with those. And so it's accountability on the property owners uh, or, or the property management company um, to hold people accountable as well. And so if it's not working out, it's like, you know what to do. You committed to this beforehand. And so yeah. you, you can cut the cord if it's not going to Happen. We need accountability as owners. 
to hold our people accountable. That's why nobody like rules. We we hate rules, so we break all the rules that we make and make our people crazy. I mean, it's uncomfortable. (laughs) This might be a question where I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm curious because there might be various reasons that a BDM can't succeed. So maybe the numbers are uh, just too far fetched. Maybe they're too ambitious. Um, but also, are there instances where a boutique residential property management company has, a set, has essentially already saturated the market? Is there a point where they can't bring on more business? So we're a market of what, 800,000 people in this area. Um, is 1,200, uh, 1200 units the max that one might consider possible? Or, and if so, does that mean that the company needs to prepare to go to new markets? Uh, mm-hmm. what, have you run into anything like that or do you have any history? Several, several thoughts. I, I'm really glad you asked this question, Jeremy. I think that th- this is where I've, you know, I've reflected on this a lot. One is a business owner. Let's just be honest. I think that all of us are playing too small, right? Like that's the default is like, I only know what I've know and I've only seen what I've seen. And so it's really hard for us sometimes to think um, the first 500 units were hard. So therefore the second 500 have to be hard, right? Like we do fall into that trap. So I just want to say that I think that in general, most of us are thinking too small. Number two, myself included, by the way, this is a self guiding conversation for sure. Uh, Number two, I think that you know, we're not really in competition with other property managers. We're in competition to uh, sell the dream and create more landowners that we can service. So that that's another thing I would say. We've got some strategies for that. We've 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 observed other people who are doing amazing at that. Um, but number so three, be, that um, and I I won't interrupt n- number three for very long. But that would be kind of your already existing profile. Uh, yeah, portfolio you see that there's a property manager that's making a 15% return or a property owner that's making a 15% return, approach them and say, Hey, would you like another one? Is that kind of what you mean? It could be that it could definitely be, um, you're doing it yourself and I can get you better results or I can get you more. I have another property. It can also be, um, are you tired of doing this? You know how many people like man self manage and then get tired of that and it's time to move on. Where does that go? It's or, also, Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. I was just, just going to creating the, creating the first time landlord, right? Creating that, that, that there's some radio commercials. I've seen my clients run in some amazing areas where it's like thinking about selling, you could actually be a landlord and they convince uh, people to do that. Okay. Yeah. Or if you have a friend who got a promotion and you're like, Hey, have you thought about your future? You want to get into property management? And yeah. they, a lot of them could use that given that the stock market is generally speaking so high, you know, maybe you could buy some, piece of garbage and fix it up and make some money on it as a rental. So there are lots of ways you can go. In any business, anyone listening to this in any business, I I totally believe this and I've seen this myself. The better margins are in creating market versus taking market. Mm -hmm. Like demand fulfillment is like, who's the lowest price? Who's going to answer my questions? I've got all the power. But when I am truly the trust advisor and I, I nurture that, there's much better margins than that. All right, number three. Let me go on to the third one. Right, yes, please. Okay, these are all good. Number three, growth means different things to different people. We've had some really successful clients and we've like draw, drawn this on like a graphic. I wish I had like a whiteboard behind me. It's a, it's a pie chart. And it's like, here's your 800 properties. Out of your 800 properties, how many of these people do you hate? And I hate to use that word so strongly. And they're like, oh, geez, probably like 90 of them. I'm like, all your medium should do is replace those 90 with better. And then when that new 90 right. shows up, you're going to hate another 10 and you're just going to keep doing it. And it's upgrading versus just growth. So that's the blind spot that a lot of us have. It's not just about expanding. Sometimes it's about upgrading. So, yeah, because our industry, at least for years, and a lot of my friends, they pride themselves in unit count, which is important. And it's actually so important to our peers that I even catch myself trying to make sure that I say that, you know, we we're 1,200 units. Yeah, we were 1,200 units last year and we were 1,200 units before that. And I have to explain to them that we've been replacing C properties with upgrading or B properties. Yeah. And it, it because 
that's the unit. Everyone cares about the unit count. Totally. I don't. I mean, well, we now we should. So I think much. we should go for that next level. Now we can. Yeah, we've already <laughs> kind of cranked out the A and B. And I don't know how your model works, but I even have clients that have like three levels of pricing, and they're happy to just have their BDMs work on everybody that's at the the lowest level and just upgrading the current clients. So mm. there's a when ah, you that's interesting. Yes, think about it, Jeremy, because I know you do sales and you got other stuff to do. When you have nothing to do but sell, you start selling in a whole different way than when it's just like, oh, I can sell. I always know how to convert. I can answer every phone call and I can convince them to buy. But you don't have the time to do all this crazy stuff we're talking about. Right. So when you're when you have clients and they're looking at a bunch of resumes, what are some of the characteristics you think make for the best salespeople? Oh, okay. You get, we have like three hours left, right? Right. We have three hours and <laughs> just kidding. To go. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Let me give you the, maybe the most uh, radio bite size, you know, thinking on this that I can give you because there's a lot here, right? So Jer- Jeremy and I, and I know you, Gwen, like we are rainmakers. We, we are a type of salesperson who can go out and we can squeeze blood out of a stone. We can, we can do crazy things. And, um, with that come some undesirable traits that I will admit. Uh, it's hard no. to keep consistent, right? I make all kinds of crazy deals, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe I want to work really hard when I have a goal and sometimes I don't and I hate to be accountable. So we think there's like four types of salespeople. And for a small business who wants to scale, there's a very specific type of salesperson I want you guys to be looking for. Oh, wow. Call that person a top performer. It's not me, it's not you. Right. Well, most of most, I always joke with my clients. I'm like, you can't afford me. Uh, I'm probably not going to listen to your rules and we're going to end up hating each other like 90 days from now. Right. But that's what most of us do as business owners is we try to find somebody just like us, yeah. but the oh. top performer is, is basically like I draw little lines and I'm like, okay, there's two dimensions you need to think about. A top performer is amazingly high on leadership ability. Like when you have a conversation with them, they don't talk all over you but they, they don't just answer questions. You can tell they're controlling the conversation, right? They're, they're asking good questions, they're responding, they're leading the conversation. And all of us do this on the call. But what we don't have is the other dimension, and that's your propensity and appetite to follow a system. So we want leaders who have an appetite for systems. If you can find that, that is the kind of person that you can scale your company on. That's what we wanna be bringing into our company. Oh, I totally agree. You want somebody who will follow the rules. Because I think the worst part about entrepreneurs is we don't follow rules and we're not detail oriented. So we suck at the processes and procedures that we wrote ourselves. <laughs> we don't follow yeah. our rules. Maybe not all of us. Yeah. But, Maybe but we also me. get especially <laughs> mad when you go back to look at the CRM and yep. it's not oh the way gosh. that I get pissed. I know. And I do too. But I'm the, yeah. My, yeah. my. Do you use okay. anything uh, like the culture index or? Uh, one page or anything like that to help. I think they're all great. They're all great. And, and um, there's not just one type of personality profile. I understand, I understand that there are some disqualifying or undesirable personality fits for sales. I will say that, but it's not like they've got to be this, like if they're within this spot or this, you know, like we have amazing people who are relationship builders. We have amazing people who are just laser directors, right? So we use something called workplace DNA. Um, but meanwhile, like we, the same concepts that we look at workplace DNA, workplace DNA, I can map the disc and I can map the culture index. It's the same mm. thing, right? So we just kind of want to know who they are and how outgoing they are. Are they willing to be conflict open? Are they leaders? Do they drive, right? Are they pioneering, which means they don't need somebody to give them a nine point checklist to show up to work and follow all day long, right? They're self starters. They're, they're comfortable with uh, inconsistency. They're comfortable with uh, figuring things out. They're resourceful. Meanwhile, they're not so over the edge. Like I said, like we are where they're just totally, you know, not going to follow your rules. So we do use a lot of them and they're good. I don't think there's, I'm not here to tell you there's like one you got to follow, but these are the things that we have conversations about. And what we use them for, Jeremy, is we, we in the last interview, or not the last interview, but for, far into the interviewing process, we tell them what their DNA says about them. 
We ask them if they agree that it's true. And then we show them, this is why we think you'll be good at the job. And this is where we think you'll struggle. Mm. And we ask them to sell us on how they're going to overcome that. Ooh, I love that. We're hiring That's a great. developer. Yeah. And I think we need to maybe bring that up to him. Um, oh, you have a question, I guess. So Jeremy, we are so happy that you've been here with us. Can you tell everybody where they can find you? Absolutely. Uh, you can find us at rentscale.com. We're also really active on Facebook. We put out all kinds of webinars and make crazy videos and share different thoughts as we have them. Uh, feel free to email me. Uh, I'm Jeremy, uh, J-E-R-E-M-Y, at rentscale.com. Uh, the lesser Jeremy on the call. As we Stop it. Oh, my God. Uh, those are the good spots. Yeah, but you can always reach out. Just follow, follow what we're doing. Even if you're not ready for this, you know, we just love sharing these things that we figure out and these prototypes and these case studies. So happy to help anybody along the way. Well, we will put that contact information down below. In the and show notes. I will also, in the show notes, and I will also have uh, the guy that's running Wistar Group give you a call to consider us bringing on a BDM. We just got finished interviewing the lovely Jeremy Pound. I, I don't understand what you mean by attractive. Uh, do get? I don't get it. He might look like a <laughs> Disney prince. I don't know. Anyway, so he, he works with Rentscale and gave us a ton of takeaways. Oh my gosh, mine was that I should have meeting invites, which you already know I love, for uh, milestones for new hires. Yeah. I think that's an amazing idea. Well, and if you haven't heard, if you're jumping into the interview a little bit late on the radio or wherever, go back and listen in slow motion like and take some notes because there were a whole bunch of gems that you can take from that. If you're a company that's looking to move forward to the next step, especially smaller companies, mid middle-sized companies, there's some takeaways there that you'd be best uh, taking uh, away. Well, one of the things that really... Uh, I want to focus on is that growth mindset. I think a lot of times we're so worried about loss, financial loss, not making payroll, or we came from that world. Like maybe our business has gone beyond that, but emotionally we haven't grown. And it seems like some of the things Jeremy Pound was talking about um, kind of get you, shake you up and make you think, hey, maybe there are more possibilities than I've been thinking about. Well, and to ease the fear a little bit, if you do have those weekly, you know, first week, second week, third week, first month, 60 day, 90 day goals already defined, there are some stop gaps, some pressure valves that, that during the process of onboarding that you can release. You just, if it's not working, you're gonna pick up on it early and mm -hmm. that'll protect your cash flow just half the kpis and you'll be in oak at least okay shape and you're gonna have to take some risk to his point if you're gonna get anywhere thank you once again for to jeremy pound for being with us here on bootstrappers that's it for this episode this has been Bootstrappers, a unique presentation designed to help you better understand how the world turns. Contact Gwen or Jeremy at posts at bootstrappers.club or visit our website, anaquim.net. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and our YouTube channel. Thank you and join us next time for Bootstrappers.